All right, so I'm going to be in Daniel chapter 4, and usually um, in a situation like this, we would have been working through the whole book and would have slowly made our way up to chapter 4, so I apologize if you're not familiar with the book. And so what I'm going to do just really quickly is try to catch you up to where chapter 4 starts. And I'm going to read one section from chapter 2, but hopefully you know the story. Daniel was a young man who was taken captive in his teenage years from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, um, probably as a 15, 16, 17-year-old, somewhere in there, as a, a very young man. Uh, and he would spend the rest of his days there. He would never go back. He would um, live through the Babylonian kingdom and into the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, and so chapter 1, if you go back and study it, Daniel's taken to Babylon, and he makes a decision because he's given access to the king's table, it says. But it says Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself because there were things there that he knew even as a 15, 16, 17-year-old he had convictions about, that he wouldn't do it. And it said God blessed him and blessed his faith. And it said when it came time for him to be tested, it says Nebuchadnezzar tested him and his friends and found them ten times better than all the other students uh, that were tested. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's first time meeting Daniel. And no doubt it left an impression. If you're testing these young men and you have four kids that are just blowing everybody else away, no doubt Nebuchadnezzar would remember that encounter. Uh, and it, just in case he wouldn't, about a year later, something else happened here in chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. You guys remember, and it says it bothered him. And none of the uh, soothsayers and none of the wise men of Babylon there could interpret this dream that he had. And it was this image where there was a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver. You guys remember chapter 2? And so finally, Daniel goes and prays, and God gives him the wisdom to interpret the dream. And the dream ends up being God showing Nebuchadnezzar basically a blueprint of what's going to happen in history starting with the Babylonian Empire, through the Medo-Persian, into the Grecian Empire, through Rome, and then ultimately into the millennium. So just in case you're not familiar with it, I'm just going to read quickly Daniel's interpretation uh, in chapter 2, verse 31, where he says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold and its chest and arms of silver and its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and feet partly of iron and part of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff for the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then look at verse 37. He says to King Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom and power and strength and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven... He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, 
Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all of the earth. And then look at verse 44. This is great. And in the days of these kings, this is talking about the stone that comes out and crushes the image and rises into a kingdom. And the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw <clears throat> that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Now, it says at the beginning of chapter 2 that this happened in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, which means Daniel was taken to Babylon, and within a year or two at the most, he had been, Nebuchadnezzar had been given this dream, and Daniel had interpreted it. So what that says to us is before Daniel is probably 18 years old, two very radical things happen to him. Number one is he's taken away from his home and from his people to then live as a stranger in a foreign land for the rest of his life. And secondly, he's given wisdom to see what's going to happen to the kingdom where he now lives. That Nebuchadnezzar is going to be this all-powerful king, but that kingdom is very limited. And by the time Nebuchadnezzar passes away, very shortly after that, the kingdom will be done away with and will be taken over by an inferior kingdom. So those two things will then fashion Daniel's worldview, right? Everything that's going to happen from there on is going to be filtered through the lens of those two things, that Daniel is a stranger in a strange land, he's never going to fully fit into Babylon, and he knows at some point Babylon's going to fold. It's going to crash. And so chapter 3 gives us this little um, sidebar. Nebuchadnezzar is introduced more intimately to Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by setting up another image which they're supposed to fall down to. And when they say, we're not bowing down, Nebuchadnezzar says, you guys know the story, throw them into the fire. But I'll give you one more chance just in case you want to change your mind. And they're like, no, we don't need to think about it. We're not bowing down to your image. And of course, uh, they are rescued there in the fire. It says, one like the Son of Man comes and walks with them. And they come out of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar makes this pronouncement saying, Nobody from here on out in Babylon can say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And no doubt he knew that Daniel was a part of that. He was sort of the fourth, fourth member of that group. And so now, with that background, we come to chapter 4, where Daniel here is going to interact with Nebuchadnezzar, sort of on a... Uh, this sort of culminates the relationship up till this point. And I have a feeling that Dan, Daniel, as a perceptive man, has a sense that God is trying to work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. <laughs> he brings Daniel and the guys there. They test him. He sees that. Uh, he brings Daniel and he gives Daniel wisdom to interpret the dream, which kind of blows Nebuchadnezzar's mind. Then he sees a miracle right in front of him with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So no doubt, Daniel has an idea that God is at work. And if nothing else, God is the one that's bringing these things to pass, right? God is the one who's initiating these, and he's going to give Nebuchadnezzar here another dream. And so no doubt Daniel's probably perceptive 
and maybe even praying for Nebuchadnezzar, like, Lord, get, get a hold of this guy before he does something really crazy. Uh, so there's a couple of themes here. Number one, we're going to see in these, we're going to try and do two chapters here tonight, four and five. We're going to see this, that God rules in the affairs of men, even the most powerful kingdom in the world at this time. We're going to see the futility of the wisdom of the world, the inept ability of the wise men of the world to do anything when God puts them uh, in a tight position. And we're going to see Daniel survive through the fall of a kingdom. Daniel's going to ride all the way into the the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. He's going to endure the collapse of the Babylonian Empire with his testimony intact and stepping right into a leadership role in the next kingdom, which is pretty remarkable. And all of that because God showed him that before he was 20 years old. Pretty that that would tend to establish a worldview as a young man, uh, and we'll get to it at the end that we have a similar worldview that hopefully can affect us. So chapter four begins by saying this: Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring all of the wise men of Babylon before me, and they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now let me just point out one thing there. There might be a little part of a saying there in in verse 7 that sticks out to you. Uh, And the What it is to me, it says, they did not make known. It didn't say they could not make known. In chapter 2, they had no idea what the dream was because Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't tell them. Here, it says, they did not make known. And it's going to turn out that the dream is something that Nebuchadnezzar, in theory, is not going to want to hear. And I think the wise men knew what the dream meant. And I think they were afraid to tell Nebuchadnezzar Uh, This is going to be the first of the failures of the wise men of the world here. Verse 8 says, But at last Daniel came before me, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of of the magicians, Because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong, and its height reached the heavens. And it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, 
And there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried out and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, and let the beasts get out from under it, and the birds from under its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth, and let his heart be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. So verse 17 there you could kind of look at as the theme of these two chapters that we're going to look at here. But notice this, that this is God initiating. This is God giving him the dream. Uh, God is the one who is allowing this to come to. God's at work. He's reaching out to him. And no doubt Daniel uh, is wondering, and you know he's, he's seeing this in real time, right? So he's trying to figure out what is going on here. And he's brought in, and Nebuchadnezzar tells him this dream, and he's going to interpret it here for him. But as I think about this, Daniel's no doubt has a sense that God is working in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And I wonder this, do we have that same sense? If the Lord tarries, how will we look back in 20 years from now on 2020. And I don't know if he will, I don't know if he won't. But if he does, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy just to get frustrated and to look around at all the things that are happening and you know, trying blaming people and all those sorts of things. What if we looked around and said, I wonder what God's trying to do? God is going to move one of the most powerful men in the world and one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world here in a pretty mighty direction. I wonder if the Lord tarries in 20 years from now, how are we going to look back on this season of our lives right now and think, what is God trying to do? Obviously, he's got our attention, right? Is there anybody here who God does not have their attention after the last six months? I think we're all like, what is going on, right? So the question is, rather than whose fault is it or who's to blame or how are we going to get out of this or what's going to happen, what is God doing? What's he trying to do in us? What's he trying to do in the world how are we going to look back on this and see? Because it says here at the end of verse 17, this is taking place in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And the same thing is true today. So what is God trying to do in the kingdom of men today by some of the things that we see around us? So for me, it's, it's more helpful to think about that than to think about whose fault it is or how did this happen or, you know, we can all kind of get stuck in those rabbit trails. Now, here's Daniel's interpretation. Look at verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. 
Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. And I think you get this feeling in a weird way the Lord has brought Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar together in this bizarre relationship. In fact, Daniel has a very real sense early on like, oh man, this isn't good. And he doesn't want to say anything. And Nebuchadnezzar looks at him and apparently knows him well enough to say, Daniel, you better tell me the truth. And Daniel looks at him and says, I wish this was for your enemies rather than for you. Verse 20 says, The tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beast of the field until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. And they shall wet you with the dew of heaven until seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel doesn't pull any punches. He says, King, I wish this was for somebody else, but here's the deal. Basically, you're going to go down. <laughs> And it's not going to be pretty. First, the now it says seven times. The Septuagint, when they translated it, translates that seven years. When you look at the fact that his hair is going to grow out and his nails, it wouldn't make sense that it would be seven weeks or even seven months. So, seems like seven years here is what is meant by that. Uh, but Daniel faithfully delivers the message. He says, "I wish this wasn't the case, but here it is. Here's the truth." And that's what God wants from us, right? He wants us to faithfully deliver the message. Daniel didn't get to the end here and be like, you know, we're all a little prideful. We could all use a good dose of humility. We're all sinners. He said, that's you, and you're going down. But notice in verse 27, he says, but you should repent. And it should be something that can be seen, right? Repentance, as Joe says, is usually something that can be seen. He says, and maybe God will be gracious. Uh, and he says here, by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel here just tells him the truth. Again, if we don't tell people the truth, ultimately we're selfish. 
Isn't that interesting? If we don't tell people the truth, it's because we're worried about ourselves and the reaction. And Daniel here in the midst of very um, intense news tells the king basically what is going to happen, doesn't pull any punches. Now, here's what happens in verse 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke, saying, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and honor and the honor of my majesty? And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown out like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. So there was a year that went by in between Daniel saying, here's what's going to happen. You should repent. You should do something about this. There's still time. Maybe God will be gracious to you. And it says 12 months later, as the king is walking along, uh, finally the time has come. And oftentimes people misinterpret God's patience and his long-suffering for his not being serious, right? And we've all been guilty of it, but certainly in this case, uh, it says that Nebuchadnezzar is out taking a walk and he has forgotten the lesson uh, that Daniel had shared with him. And the other truth is some people just have to learn the hard way. (laughs) Think about this. Nebuchadnezzar had met Daniel, was blown away by his wisdom, Miraculously, Daniel interprets this dream for him, line by line, detail by detail. He throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. They walk out with someone that looks like the Son of God, is the Son of God. And still, Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm the man. I built this place. This is all me. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Lego Batman, but it's one of the funny movies. I have little kids, so uh, sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. So anyway, he comes, Daniel comes back here, and it says here that King Nebuchadnezzar says, man, this is, I've built it, this is my thing, I'm responsible for this, the foolishness of pride. And God, in his wisdom and in his mercy, notice this, God could have just smoked Nebuchadnezzar and said, that's it, you're done, four strikes and you're out. But God allows a temporary insanity to come upon him. And to me, there's, there's two miraculous things that happen in the scene. Number one is Nebuchadnezzar, God reaches down and somehow scrambles his mind and gives him a mental illness for a period of seven years where he goes out and thinks he's an animal, basically. But what might be even more miraculous is during that seven years, his kingdom is not usurped from him. Nobody goes and stabs him. Nobody tries to take over. There's no coup. There's no nothing like that. In this world, when the king goes down like that and nothing like that happens, that to me is pretty miraculous. And we're not told, but I would imagine Daniel has something to do with that. 
that Daniel, when he had prophesied the year earlier, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get taken down, but it's going to be for a limited amount of time. No doubt when it actually happened, Daniel, I believe, stepped up to the plate and probably um, helped out his friend, the king here. And think about this, right? So King Nebuchadnezzar says, check out this Babylon, right? And we know about it from history, huge walls, uh, the Euphrates River flowing right through it, the hanging gardens that he had built. Uh, it says that the walls were probably upwards of 100 feet tall, and he had built these terraces of planter boxes, basically reaching up to the top of the walls so he could plant them with all kinds of beautiful vegetation. Now think about that, right? Nebuchadnezzar standing there looking, thinking, man, look at this 100-foot tower of cool flowers. Years from now, from then... Nebuchadnezzar would step into heaven, I believe, that he gets saved, steps into heaven, looks around, and you just think of the foolishness of his own mind, saying, this is the great Babylon, this is it, this is as good as it gets, I've built the coolest thing in the world, and at some point he steps into heaven and must have thought, how foolish I was. And God is the one that could have just very easily let him go, right? God could have just said, you think you're the man? Well, see ya. Here come the Medes and the Persians. But God purposely took him down, protected him, put a limit on it, and then brought him back. And I think the same thing is true with us. Whatever prideful things we have or prideful thoughts we have, when we get to heaven and we look around and we think, Lord, you had mercy on me, and this is what I've gotten. Whatever I tried to hold on to in the world or whatever I thought was valuable, you know, some of us during this time have sort of felt vulnerable. Well, what happened? What if this happens? And what happens if, you know, things crash? Or what's going to... And you just think how foolish it's going to be when we step into heaven and we realize God had taken us all the way and got us there. The foolishness of trying to hold on to whatever little thing we had here, even if it's the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, no doubt he thought, I was an idiot. Like, this is nothing compared to what is before me. Uh, I'm just going to read you this verse in Jeremiah because I love uh, what Jeremiah says here. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. So the Lord says, don't take pride in anything other than simply knowing him. So the real miracle, I believe, is that his kingdom is protected and then given back to him. So look at verse 34. And at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him, who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me, and my counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. So a pretty remarkable lesson there that God teaches Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, if nothing else, learns the one most important lesson for all human beings, that you can bow now and extol the Lord as God, or you can bow later. But bowing now is the much preferable way to go. And so Nebuchadnezzar eventually now, after the fourth crisis that God brings into his life, ultimately bows his will, and I personally believe gets saved And I believe we're going to see him in heaven. Now, there is another example in chapter 5 of someone who does think of himself a little more highly than he ought. Uh, This is Belshazzar, who is most likely Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Uh, There's several leaders that um, come after Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, his grandson, uh, his son, Nabonidus, takes over. But what happens is he goes down to Saudi Arabia and he leaves his son, Belshazzar, uh, as sort of a regent king there in Babylon. And so um, Bible critics used to hammer this passage because there was no mention of Belshazzar. And then about 50 years ago, they found this cool vessel and it's talked about Nabonidus leaving his son, Belshazzar, in charge of uh, Babylon when he left for Arabia. So there you go. So Belshazzar here is going to give us wisdom from the other side. So uh, we see a Nebuchadnezzar yielding to God and ultimately um, coming under his, uh, his power. Now we're going to see the opposite here. It says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, one other important context is right now, during this, right here at at verse 1 of chapter 5, the Medo-Persian Empire has arisen, and they have already defeated his dad, Nabonidus, and have come and have now besieged Babylon, and were trying to conquer them. Babylon, to its credit, was pretty much a fortress. Uh, The Euphrates River flow through it. They had these these huge walls, and they thought they were impenetrable because even as the river ran through it, in the middle of the city, they had walls around the river. So even if someone got in through the river, there was inner walls, and they thought they were impenetrable. And here, so in the midst of that, uh, we have this scene here. So this Belshazzar is going to throw a party in the midst of his kingdom about, in, about to crumble. He's in serious danger, and his response to that is to get hammered with a thousand of his buddies. That's basically what's happening. Now, we're not told much about Daniel during this time and uh, during the years, but we know, again, that that dream of Nebuchadnezzar is that Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the head of gold, but after the head of gold... It says his kingdom is going to be then taken over by an inferior kingdom made up of the chest and arms of silver. So how is Daniel thinking through this and processing it? Uh, We're not sure. But here, Belshazzar is ignorant and has this false sense of security. And in the middle of a dangerous time, he throws a party. It says for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. 
And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that they had taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So again, it's hard for us to imagine our city or our country being surrounded by enemies about to be overtaken and us entering into a scene like this. And not only that, but it says, as they do there in verse 2, while he tasted the wine. And it seems to me the idea is is that as they began to drink, Belshazzar here takes it to a different level, which is typically the way that those kind of things happen. As you begin to partake of alcohol, you are tempted to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do had you not been in that position. Most of us have learned that lesson. If you haven't, learn it the easy way and just stay away from it. But Belshazzar here is going to find himself in trouble, wanting pleasure in the midst of danger. And I'm just going to read this for you. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul talks about perilous times coming upon the world. And he says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. And the idea of perilous there is dangerous. There's going to be dangerous things around us in the middle of the last days. And he, he has this whole list of negative things that are going to happen. But here's a couple of things that he says. He says, in the last days, perilous times will come. So you would think, the world is a dangerous place right now. How are men going to respond? Are they going to be careful? Are they going to be defensive? Are they going to be watching? It says, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, goes on, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Isn't that interesting? Paul says in the last days, things are going to get really dicey and it's going to be really dangerous. But one of the things people are going to be known for is that they're going to be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It's not going to cause people to hunker down and be careful. It says it's just going to exacerbate their flesh, basically. Whatever's in there is just going to come out even more, which we'll look at at the end here. But to me, I thought that was pretty interesting. So they're in this scene. They're at this party, and Belshazzar thinks he's the man, and he's drinking, and all of his buddies are there, and they think they're impenetrable, and there's no way the Medes and Persians are going to break in, and who cares what they're doing? We're just going to have a great night. And then verse 5, And in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, notice this, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. And the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." 
Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. So the party goes from awesome to terrible in the matter of four short words, 12 letters. This hand appears and begins to write on the wall, which obviously is where we get the term, the handwriting on the wall. But here's the question. If Belshazzar doesn't know what it means, and he calls in all of his buddies, and they don't know what it means, all the smartest guys in the, in the realm, then why are they freaked out? Why wouldn't they think, hey, this, is, this might be a sign that we are going to live forever? You know, why? But it's interesting, isn't it, that they immediately interpret it as bad news. Why is that? Because we all have a conscience. And you can suppress that conscience, and you can try to numb it with alcohol or with your, in this case, his harem or his buddies or whatever, but his conscience was awake underneath. And when that handwriting came, 12 simple letters, and he had no idea what it said, he just knew he was in trouble. Isn't that interesting? And Daniel here is going to have the opposite response. Daniel is going to come in and be quite at peace. But Jesus said, people that do what he says are like men that build a house on a strong foundation. And the winds come in and the rain comes down and they beat on the house, but the house stands. But if you build your house on the sand, the wind is going to come, the rain's going to come, the storm's going to come in, and it says, and that house fell. And then he says, and great was its fall. Not only did the house tilt a little bit, it wasn't just condemned. It says it fell and hit the ground and great was its fall. The idea was you would look around and be astonished. And here, in the matter of five minutes, Belshazzar went from prideful, arrogant king to his house was laying in ruins on the side of the, the sand, as it were. So very interesting. And I wonder when the rapture takes place. Right? And lots of different people have tried to think about this and film Christian movies on it. But when the rapture takes place, what will people's response be that are still here? Will they have a similar response? People that at least know the Bible and in general who are really comfortable and really good and want nothing to do with religion. And all of a sudden, in one hour or one afternoon, we know the entire world is going to change. What will that be like? And I think this is maybe just a a slight picture because we know the same thing. Paul says in Romans, people have a conscience. That conscience um, is there, and it is speaking to them. So let's look here, verse uh, 10. It says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall, and the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, probably her way of twisting the knife a little bit, Your father the king made him chief of the magicians and astrologers and Chaldeans and soothsayers. And inasmuch as an excellent spirit 
knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas was found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. And Daniel was brought in before the king. Now, very interesting. We're not told where Daniel was. We're told that he was brought in after all of the wisest men in the world had no idea what to do. And again, God is able, with the slightest stroke of his hand, to completely render the world totally helpless. And we, again, have seen just a a little picture, a little glimpse of what that's been like, haven't we? In the last nine months, just one little twist, and the world is completely helpless, has no idea what to do or how to move forward very interesting. And here he calls all the wisest guys he knows and the most, the smartest guys, the guys should have the, all the answers, nothing. And the queen comes in and says, call Daniel. Now, that's important for two reasons. Again, Daniel knew this kingdom was going to go down. He knew when Nebuchadnezzar passed off the scene that it was only a matter of time until Babylon was going to fall. right? And no doubt, as Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar comes on the scene, no doubt he sees the, you know, he can just tell the way things are going. So Daniel is not here at this party. Daniel is finding his way through this world, trying to stay undefiled and still just walk with the Lord, right? And he's not invited to the party. And if you want to go back, Pastor Joe does a great study on this, uh, saying that he was not invited, but he was summoned. And that's the way that we should be in the midst of the world, that we should be around when things like this happen to have an answer, but we should not be there at that party. But notice this. He walks in totally at peace, totally calm. The rest of the party is freaking out, totally just have lost their peace. And it says, verse 13, And Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me the interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard... Of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And again, that just backs up the fact that Nabonidus had left and had left Belshazzar in charge. And so he says to Daniel, If you figure this out, you're going to be right next to me and my dad. You'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel obviously knows enough that he doesn't want the third position in a failing kingdom, right? That would be like somebody saying the night before the Titanic goes down here, have the captain's suite on the Titanic. It's yours. Enjoy. You deserve it. Uh, It's just not all it's cracked up to be. So verse 17, so Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another Yet I will read the writing of the king and make known to him the interpretation. So isn't that interesting? That's that worldview that was established very early on in his life, that this kingdom was very limited and was going to go down. And Daniel here wants nothing to do with it. 
says, I don't want your rewards. I don't want your treasures. He says, but I will let you know what this means. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. And whomever he wished, he executed, and whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up, and whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from the kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. And they fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. So verse 22 is kind of the key in this. God holds Belshazzar responsible. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew this. You knew this story. You had the lesson. And it says here that God holds him responsible for that through Daniel. That's Daniel's message here to him. Now, verse 23 says, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and the writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel comes through and interprets this dream, seems to be supernaturally God allows him to understand um, the words and the lettering and the order. And he says, here's what it means. You have been found, you have been weighed in the balances it's their words used in currency and, and weight and measures. And he just says, you have been found in the balances, weighed out, and you haven't, you're, you're a lightweight. You've been found wanting. And now, verse 28, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Isn't that interesting? So Daniel in chapter 2 had told Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, but after you, there's going to come a kingdom of silver inferior to yours that's going to take over. And now, all these year, years later, Daniel looks at his grandson and says, it's over. The Medes and the Persians, this body here of silver, is now taking over this kingdom once and for all. And it says here now in verse 30, and that, uh, I'm sorry, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the commandment, and they clothed Daniel with purple, and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar still doesn't quite get it. But he will here in verse 30. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldean, was slain. 
And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That same night, uh, and again, if you've studied this chapter, you know that the Medes and the Persians went north above the Euphrates River, and they diverted it into a swamp, and as the river level dropped, they were able to walk underneath the gates into the city of Babylon, where those inner gates, Josephus says, had been left unlocked in the pride of the Babylonians, thinking there's no way they can ever get in here. We don't even have to lock the doors of the inner gates. And it says that night, the greatest city known in the world at that time basically fell without even a fight. And by the end of that night, Belshazzar then is slain, the Babylonian Empire is destroyed, and the Medes and the Persians take over, and Daniel sees his interpretation of that dream basically come to pass right in front of his eyes. So, interesting, Babylon is destroyed, at the, and as they are, they're at the height of their pride and arrogance. Now, I just want to read this. I don't have time to go into the, to a whole thing on this, but it's interesting. Uh, I'm just going to read this in Revelation chapter 18. John sees this scene, and he refers to it as Babylon, and it says this in verse talking about the destruction of Babylon, mystery Babylon, he calls it. And he says, people are, the people of the earth are standing around at the end in this judgment in Revelation, and they can't believe how quickly this Babylon, does it stand for the, the world economic system? We're not sure. It's a whole other study. But what is true is this. He says in verse 15, and the merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches has come to nothing. So it says in Revelation that this Babylon that John is talking about here in the very same way, the world is going to get judged, and it says people are going to stand around and be blown away that something that looks so strong and so powerful, and by the way, was so arrogant and blasphemous right at the very end. As Revelation goes on, the men that don't repent get more and more blasphemous and more and more arrogant until this scene, and John says, in one hour, the entire, the entire system is taken down, and men just stand there with their mouths hung open saying, we can't believe that just happened. That's what's still ahead of us, right? That's what should affect our worldview. So Daniel got that vision early on, and it affected how he viewed the world he was in. We're a little farther ahead, but we see that as well, that one of these days, the world is going to stand around, and it's going to be blasphemous and arrogant and prideful, and it's going to abuse people, and it's going to ride on top of people and take advantage of them. But in one hour, it says God's going to come when the time is right, and all their blasphemy and pride will get taken down, and people will just stand there dumbfounded, saying, can you believe that? The entire system got taken down in one hour. And it says it's just remarkable. So, Daniel here is trying to navigate his way through a world that God has showed him is going to get judged, right? As a 16, 17-year-old, God shows Daniel the kingdom that he is living in, that he's not a citizen of, he's a foreigner, 
but it's going to get judged. And Daniel finds a way to work his way through. Look at chapter 6, just the first couple verses. So the Medes and Persians take over. It says, And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because an excellent spirit was found in him. And the king gave through to settling him over the, I'm sorry, gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. That's pretty remarkable. From a young teenage boy navigating his walk with the Lord all the way through all of those different things, through the demise of the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, and come out on the other side with his testimony intact, his conscience in a good place, to the point where the Medes who take over instantly put him as one of the top three or four guys in all of that area. That, to me, is something for us to look at and to appreciate and to pray that God would help us do that. Uh, So that's, in a similar sense, where we are tonight, right? In that dream that Daniel saw, it says towards the end there's going to be a fourth kingdom, and that kingdom is going to rise, and it's going to be like iron mixed with clay, But at some point, there's going to be a stone that's going to be cut without hands. And that stone is going to come down and it's going to smash into the bottom of that image. And all of the world powers are going to be crushed and it says blown away. And that stone will then rise up and take over the whole world and establish a kingdom that will live forever and ever. So we're somewhere in the end of that thing. So Daniel knew he was at the beginning. We're somewhere at the end. We're waiting for that stone to get cut out. Uh, very interesting. But the way Daniel was able to navigate through that and figure it out and just trust the Lord and walk with him, uh, we can do the same thing. And God is certainly able to humble an unbelieving world. And to some will respond like Nebuchadnezzar did, and to some it will just harden and they will be defeated like Belshazzar was. So uh, we're going to end there. Why don't we uh, stand and we'll pray and we'll sing a last song. Father, we just commit this to you, Lord. We thank you for men like Daniel, uh, men who you have raised up, Lord, for us to look at and to understand, Lord, that though they were just men, Lord, you were able to work in their lives, Lord. And uh, whatever season of life this is for us, Lord, we recognize things are uh, different than they've been, Lord. We don't know. Uh, But we ask, Lord, that you would help us to navigate through this, Lord. Help us uh, to to be able to walk through this, Lord, with our consciences and our testimonies intact, uh, Lord, and to see, we long for that day, Lord, where we see that stone cut without hands, Lord, establishing a kingdom that will rise forever and ever. So we commit that to you, and we pray in your name. Amen.